0: For the majority of human history, more was always better. It's like more options is always better, more possible job opportunities is always better. And I think just in the 21st century, like we're hitting this point where more is no longer better. In fact, it's actually crippling us because it's our our brains can't keep up with all the options and opportunities and information that's going on. And so I. I try to redefine freedom as a form of self-limitation. You find the one or two things that you give a fuck about and you learn to just block out all the noise or distractions for those things.
1: Welcome back to Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. This week's guest is Mark Manson. Mark has a new book out called Everything is Fucked, a book about hope. His first book was called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And that book has spent a long time on the New York Times bestseller list. I believe in this episode, Mark says that it's about to go on his 160th week. So I really wanted to have Mark on because I wanted to ask, how the hell do you write a second book after your first book has spent that long on the New York Times bestseller list? And he had a of interesting thoughts about that, about what success like that can do. It's obviously a blessing in a lot of ways, but it also can cast a shadow over everything else you do. And I think what people don't tell you about the downsides of success was really interesting. And then Mark also had some interesting thoughts in this new book about sort of the paradox of progress. Why when at a time when materially speaking, we seem to be doing better than ever before, curing more diseases, living longer, we still seem to be more distressed, more anxious, more depressed. And he also talked about along with that, why when we have more freedom of choice than we've ever had that also can cause a lot of dissatisfaction and why true freedom actually comes from self-limitation and figuring out what things to give a fuck about and what things not to give a fuck about and lastly he's writing a book with will smith so we talked about will smith what he's learned from will smith and he tells a good anecdote about how the fresh prince of bel-air actually started uh, it involves a party at quincy jones's house Mark Manson, welcome to Airplane Mode. Thanks for having me. First question I have for you, we're here talking about your new book, Everything is Fucked. What do you, you know, we have the explicit tag, so we can talk about it explicitly, but on on these press tours, I'm curious what you might do in a more delicate situation.
0: (laughs) Some people do everything is effed, everything is bleeped, everything is fricked. Like you, <laughs> you, you hear it all. You hear it all. It's it's almost like a. You can tell the person's personality by how they avoid it. Your first book was called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah.
1: At what point did you know the the sort of importance of fuck to the to the Mark Manson brand? <laughs>
0: did you know that the second book would also include the f bomb? Or so the publisher really wanted it. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Deflected that question. I love it. And so. Not completely deflecting. So they they I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So when Subtle Art blew up, one of the first things the publisher did is they they brought me into their office and they're like, "All right, we got this great idea. We're gonna do Subtle Art not giving a fuck for teens. Subtle Art not giving a fuck for parents. Subtle Art not giving a fuck for teachers." And they had this whole idea of of and I was like, "Oh God, no, no, I'm no, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry." And so my philosophy with it was like, look, I don't want to be defined by this word my entire career, but at the same time, I recognize that people associate me with this. So, you know, it's, I told them, I said, I'm not going to, if I come up with a good title with fuck in it, great, but I'm not just going to start ramming the F word in everything because that's, you know, what Mark Manson's supposed to do.
1: You talk about the other book blowing up, Mm -hmm. that book, just astronomical success. How many copies has it sold to date?
0: I think we're pushing 9 million. Which is wild. What are some other books that have sold 9 million copies? (laughs) I don't know. Like uh, The Secret. Okay. You know, things like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Like The Alchemist. Yeah. Basically stuff that's, it's entering that territory where it's just like classic status, you know? And at what point did you know it was blowing up like that? Like at what point did you know this
1: this is a thing?
0: This book is having a moment? You know, so it took off maybe four or five months after it came out. Like, it had a good launch. I think it debuted at number six on the Times list, which, you know, when you're a debuted author, like, the big thing is, like, just get on the Times list, you know? Because then for the rest of your life, you can call yourself a New York Times bestseller. So that happened. I was pretty happy with that. And then it was about four months later, it started taking off. I was like, shit, this is cool. Like, this is fun. Uh, we'll see how long this goes. And I kept expecting... And I was like, all right, well, you know, next month it's going to start coming down. Oh, next month, next month. And it's been three years now, uh, and it still hasn't. And it's still on there? Yeah, I wow. think it's, uh, actually, I think this week it's going to be number one again. Wow. Yeah, it's it's 160 straight weeks on wow. the Times list. Yeah. So
1: now having a new book out, Yeah. how does that sort of shift the goalposts? for what success is for this second book, right? Like that must be an interesting
0: calculus given the to- success of the first one. Totally messes with your head. <laughs> totally messes. It. Like when this one came out, so this one debuted at number one, which was, you know, that's, again, that's the goal. But I was talking to my agent, you know, I'm doing all these interviews, I'm, I'm doing a speaking tour, I'm like going on TV. And I told my agent, I'm like, I don't even know what a good book book launch looks like like it's because any numbers that come back to me they seem small yes you know so it's me like the publisher is just like dancing in their office they it's a huge book launch and i'm sitting there i'm like man that's not many copies (laughs) so i think it's just it that being my first book i think if i had done like four or five other books i I would have more perspective Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. because that was my first book and it blew up that much i realized i really had no perspective on like what a good book launch looked like so this is interesting. I want to
1: dive into this a little bit because, it, like that first book, is about figuring out what to give a fuck about, basically right. in your life. Yeah, the idea that as you get older and you get more mature, you figure out which fucks to give. Sure, <laughs> I sure. mean, I, so I sort of love that, but I could understand how having a book be that successful could make you give a fuck about things that you originally didn't give a fuck about, right? Like publicity and sort of all this popularity. And so I'm curious when you're writing the second book, how you sort of sit down with yourself and determine metrics of success that are things you actually care about and not things that you give a fuck about because the first book was so successful, right?
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely. There are a lot of traps that come along with success. So, you know, getting addicted to say the publicity, for instance, like that is absolutely a trap. And you can feel yourself starting to fall into that. And I would kind of pull myself Away from it, and I think there are a lot of subtle traps like that. You know, one for me that I really struggled with was, and I think it comes from the fact that I, I started out as a blogger. You know, so I blogged for ten years, and when you're a blogger, you're posting articles every week, and you're watching your your stats, your traffic stats, and every month you've got a little bit more traffic than the month before, and every year is a little bit more traffic than the year before, a little bit more money. A well, bit. only if you're a good blogger. Well, yeah, exactly. But it, it's you know, I had been kind of stair stepping my way up for almost ten years, and then subtle art comes in just you know hundred x's everything, and you don't go any higher than that like you know like wherever subtle art is, there's not real you know there's like the Bible and like that's that there's like <laughs> in Harry Potter yes. like that's pretty much that's pretty much the only level above and so what I didn't realize is how attached I was to that kind of incremental improvement, mm-hmm. and so when I sat down to write this one, I felt lost. I'm like well crap like how do i improve on what i just did and so i kind of fell into that trap a little bit of getting too attached to not numbers necessarily but that feeling of like okay well this one's got to do better in this country or have more translations or whatever ultimately the fuck that i decided to give that kind of saved me was i realized i'm like okay you you got to just shut out all this stuff and try to write a better book Mm -hmm. like write a smarter book a deeper book and you know If at the end of the day, like once you've written it, then you can worry about trying to sell it. Mm -hmm. But while you're writing, the only thing you can care about is writing a better book. Were you able to have as much fun writing this one?
1: Uh, Because I think this is interesting. I think (laughs) think the reason I ask is because I think this is an interesting, like I don't think this is a thing that is necessarily wholly specific to you. Like so much of work these days is – extrinsically motivated right like yeah. like everything we do is so externally signaled. Sure. You tweet about it or you and you know in my case writing for GQ like you can see the clicks you can see how many yeah. minutes people spend you can see the uh, unique visitors i'm sure you can see that yeah. on your blog as well and you can very quickly get into a habit of looking at likes or follower counts
0: or things like sure. that
1: as a means of external validation rather than actually taking joy in the work. Yeah. And so that's why i
0: asked if, if you had as much fun writing this one. So I'll I'll put it this way. There was way more pressure on this one. With Subtle Art, it was funny because nobody knew who I was. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, people knew who I was, but like in the publishing world, nobody. So there were no expectations. Harper, they were expecting just to kind of put out a generic blogger book. So that was, while that was liberating, it was also my first book, so I had no idea what I was doing. Subtle art, there was a lot of crap that was cut (laughs) out of that book, Mm -hmm. like a lot of bad stuff. This book, I had a little bit more of an idea of what I was doing. I think I I, I was a better writer, so that was more enjoyable. I felt more capable, I guess, writing this book, but the the pressure was absolutely immense. So how do you handle that? (laughs) Dude, (laughs) just uh, crawl under your desk and... (laughs) Take a Xanax. And
1: <laughs> uh, I guess I can make it a little more concrete by asking, like, what are some obstacles you run into when you sit down to write either generally mm-hmm. and how do you deal with those? Or maybe to concretize this idea, what are some obstacles you ran into at the second book yeah. that you didn't have
0: at the first book and how did you sort of engage with them and overcome them? The general broad answer to the writing question in general is, is distraction. So one thing I like to do when I write is co-work. And it's not for any, like, tangible benefit. It's just that when I'm sitting at a table with somebody else, I feel guilty looking at YouTube all day. So (laughs) (laughs) so it's I like having a friend next to me or across from me because it just it seems to help me stay focused. And so one day I was I was working and I was like, man, I had a great writing day. And he was like, wow, so you're feeling really inspired. He said, you know, what is it about today that inspired you? And I I said, you know, I don't know if there's a difference between inspiration and just lack of distraction, you know, just blocking out all the crap and bullshit. I love the idea that
1: inspiration may not be that different from distraction. All right, sorry. Lack of distraction. Lack of distraction. Do you know Jason Isbell, the musician? No. Great musician. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. But he has this quote where he's talking about songwriting and he's like, your job is to show up every day and yep. sometimes the muse shows up and, and you write a great song doesn't. and sometimes she doesn't. <laughs> but if you don't show up on that day, like I think similar to what you're saying, if you're distracted and she shows up and you're not there, you've matter. Missed, Yeah, you've missed the opportunity. Totally. Have you figured out
0: other ways to sort of mitigate distraction when you're not co-working? I mean, I'm one of those people. I think Jonathan Franzen had a famous quote a long time ago. He said that when the internet was blowing up, in the early 2000s, he said that no great book will ever be written on a computer with an internet connection. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I'm one of those people, I I download those apps that block Facebook and social media and email and everything. Like, I have to use those. Yeah. It doesn't matter how disciplined I am that day, I'll fall into checking stuff and next thing i know i've been watching cat videos for two hours so it's easy trap to fall into (laughs) it's really easy (laughs) can you go like
1: three four hours of sort of deep work or how how do you usually structure that
0: uh a good day like a good day i'll max out around three or four hours most days probably more like two or three okay but what i noticed is i'll sometimes i can double up on a day so i'll wake up do three or four hours and then just chill Around the afternoon, and then if, if I'm on deadline, then I can after dinner or something, I can bang out another three or four hours. But that's like if I have to, yeah, it's like a gun to my head.
1: That's heartening for me to hear because I feel similarly. Yeah, like, I always feel like
0: three to four hours of a day of work does not feel like a lot. It messed with me for a long time. I felt like you know, you should be able to like power yourself through like yes. a good eight or 10 hour a day, you know, like as if you're working with spreadsheets or something, but it doesn't creatively, like, doesn't work that way. And the thing about writing too, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, is that bad writing, it creates more work. For you. <laughs> so yes. it's like, yeah, it's like, so let's say I write six hours, but two of those hours I write crap. I just created extra work for myself because now I have to revise and delete those yes. extra two hours of writing. Yes. So. Well, sometimes it helps to just
1: get it down. Yeah even if it's shit. Yeah. But I I think that gets us into the book nicely and into some ideas about sort of hope and Mm -hmm. whatnot. So I'm going to ask you to give me, like,
0: how would you synthesize this second book? So two things were going on in my life at the time. The first was what we've been talking about, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the, I'll call it the fallout of the success. Like people don't talk about it much, but like success really kind of messes with you Mm because it's you work your whole life with this idea of like, I'm going to accomplish my dream. And then that dream comes true and you kind of just stand around and are like, okay, now what? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's it's this thing that provided a purpose for you is because you accomplished it, it's taken away from you. And now you don't have a purpose anymore. And so that really messed with me. And then on top of that, all the pressure of a follow-up and everything, it, it was really 2017 was a rough year. And when did the first book come out? 2016. 2016, yeah. So that was going on. And then kind of the other thing that was going on at the same time was, you know, it's just people are freaking out about everything, everywhere. People on the right, people on the left, religious people, non-religious people, like everybody. Everybody's just like kind of seems to be losing their minds. And it was interesting because I I, I was traveling around the world 2017 promoting subtle art. And, you know, here in the U.S., we had the 2016 election and all the crazy media stuff that went on after it. And I'm going to these other countries and I'm discovering that all these other countries, they're going through the same thing. Hmm. The same polarization, same hysteria, same social media kind of outrage mobs attacking each other. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. That suggests that there's something fundamental about like the technology and the way information is being conveyed. And it's not just Americans' being crazy Americans. (laughs) So I started digging into that and just came across this fascinating paradox, which is that materially speaking, like the world is better off than it's ever been in human history. We're living longer, we're healthier, we're wealthier, we are more educated, have access to more information, more technology, we're curing diseases, like on and on and on and on. Yet when you look at mental health, data. It's depression, anxiety, suicide, drug overdoses. All these things are on the rise. And what's even most interesting is that it's in the safest and wealthiest countries Hmm. that these things are the highest. So I was like, huh, that's strange. It's like places in the world where things are the best, people seem to struggle with finding a sense of meaning and hope in their lives. And it resonated with me a lot personally, because it's obviously, it's like, On paper, my life was the best it had ever been. Meanwhile, I'm like sitting around in my underwear until four in the afternoon, (laughs) like wondering what the hell to do with my life, you know? And so I'm like, huh, this is fascinating. Like this is absolutely, there's something about comfort and convenience and I guess success that just makes us mentally struggle in an interesting way. You look at someone who has a New York Times bestseller that's been there for 160 weeks.
1: Yeah, something like that. And you hear that you're sitting in your underwear until 4 p.m. I think people would be like, like, I assume people think it's glamorous and sexy. And I I just think that's really interesting that that, you know, the idea that when you've wanted something for so long and then you get it, it's kind of like, fuck,
0: what do I do now? It's fascinating. You know, a friend of mine called it astronaut syndrome. Apparently the guys who, the first guys who went to the moon, when they came back, they were just a depressed wreck. Cause they're like, how do you top that? Yeah. You know, like (laughs) for the rest of my life, all people are going to think about me is that what I just did. That is really really daunting and yeah. scary. It's only recently actually with with this book coming out. I think I needed to get this book out to kind of get my mind to a healthier place about subtle art. But just in the last month or two I'm starting to see subtle artists like wow, this is this is a real blessing. Like you know, cuz this thing it's going to sell for decades. Like you know, my financial future is secure forever. You know, like it's a real blessing. And okay, boohoo, I'm never going to sell a yeah. million books again. But like that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a couple of years, but I'm I'm kind of arriving at a place where of real gratitude about it. But I think this book, the the follow up, was the real monkey on my back that I I kind of had to get that off first before I could uh, be in a good spot. So, what are some of the traps of chasing comfort, security? Mm-hmm.
1: These things that you're saying are often correlating with countries that seem to have psychological distress despite having
0: material sure. comforts. There's a lot of interesting research that I talk about in the second half of the book. One one of them is that the human mind, to remain kind of steady and functional, the human mind needs kind of a baseline level of conflict. So we need to feel as though we have some sort of purpose or meaning in our lives. We need to feel as though we're struggling against something. And for most of human history, we had plenty of great things to struggle against. The crazy thing is that when you make people's lives more and more comfortable, they don't struggle less or they don't find fewer things to be upset about. They just start getting upset about stupider and stupider things. Mm. You know, it's like the Uber driver who dropped you off the the wrong place or, you know, the pizza that came with the wrong top. You know, it's like you start freaking the fuck out. The, The human mind is just always going to kind of have this baseline level of frustration. So I think that that's one issue that like just as a culture we're very unaware of. There's always this assumption that comfort's always better, convenience is always better and we don't, pay attention to like how that's kind of warping our perceptions about the world. Another one that I talk about is, is paradox of choice. So classic set of studies. If I offer you like two boxes of cereal and you pick your favorite one, you'll be satisfied with that decision. Like you'd be like, well, I had two choices. I picked the better one. Life's good. If I give you like 30 boxes of cereal and you have to pick one now, whichever box you pick, it's actually going to generate more anxiety because you're going to be thinking about the other 29 boxes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what if those are better? What if I missed the best one? I think that kind of plays out across society. Sometimes we refer to it as FOMO, like this. There's so many options and so many potential experiences and so much information that we never know if we're getting the right one, Mm -hmm. if we're experiencing the best one. And so it actually makes us more distrustful, more skeptical, more anxious. About all of our decisions. So I like this. I think it's a it's an important point. Before going
1: further into it, I feel like one thing that's worth noting is that it's a fairly privileged space. That Absolutely speaking, right. Like, Absolutely. Like there are a lot of people who have. I know you know this, but I feel yeah. like that's a critique that often gets lobbed, and so sure. I just want to bring it into the room. Which is, and it's a fair critique, I think. Yeah. That a lot of people don't have the luxury of choosing to orient themselves towards a little bit of discomfort. Absolutely. So I think that's important to say, but I think the idea that, you know, you make this point in the book that we're always chasing sort of the perfect 10, Mm -hmm. but pretty much no matter what happens to you, when they had to have done studies on this, most people are at about a seven. You experience it as a seven. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what your life circumstances are, it seems. So the idea that you pretty much, your life is going to recalibrate so that you're a seven all the time, yeah. no matter what you do, yeah. is an interesting insight. I guess my question is, what do you do with that? So now when you know that, how can you turn that into sort of a guiding light in your life? How does that change what you orient yourself towards or how you think about
0: day-to-day existence? So w- one of the things I write about is we need to think about the idea of freedom a little bit differently. Before, people didn't have anything. You didn't have options. You know, you, you probably lived in a small town. You, you, there was only one or two jobs open for you. You couldn't choose your own career path. You couldn't really choose the people you mm-hmm. hung out with. You couldn't really choose what you did for fun. And so- There weren't that many varieties of cereal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so the majority of human history, more was always better. It's like More options is always better. More possible job opportunities, always better. And I think just in the 21st century, like we're hitting this point where more is not, is no longer better. In fact, it's actually crippling us. Mm. Our brains can't keep up with all the options and opportunities and information that's going on. I try to redefine freedom as a form of self-limitation of like what real freedom is now is cutting off saying, okay, these 20 boxes of cereal, I'm just not even going to look at because these 10 reflect the way I want to live my life. Yeah. We need to develop skills as individuals to start doing that more ruthlessly in our lives. Um, instead of getting caught up in like, oh man, I wish I could go there. Oh, I wish I could hang out with this person. Oh, I wish I could do this. It's like, no, it's you find, comes back to the subtle art not giving you a fuck. You find the one or two things that you give a fuck about and you learn to block out all the noise or distractions for those things. In subtle art, you talk about figuring
1: out what problems you can get comfortable living with. Yes. Because it's the problems that end up defining your life, not the sort of happiness or joy that, you, totally. that you're so constantly chasing. Yeah. I feel like this book, some that your books sometimes get characterized as self-help books. And I'm curious how you would react to that because having read both of them, I feel like you might buck that classification.
0: I definitely think Subtle Art is, is a self-help book. I think this one is a little bit more philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's like probably like half philosophy, half self-help. I like to think of myself as a pessimistic self-help, okay. which sounds like an oxymoron, <laughs> but the, the way I think about it is like classic self-help kind of emerged from this culture of, oh, you can do anything. If you dream it, you can do it, you know? And it's like this cheesy go get attitude. <laughs> and not only is it a little bit misplaced, but I, I think it it's a little bit unhealthy in some ways. I feel very strongly like if you spend a lot of time with psychological research you realize that humans like we're just kind of shitty creatures. Like we're, <laughs> we don't think straight. We're irrational. We're selfish. We're biased. We're prejudiced. Like all these awful things. We're flawed. We're they, flawed. We're very flawed. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how smart you are, how, how much money you make, like you are a very flawed creature. And so I really just wanted the right like kind of self-help-ish type, like because we all want to be better people. Mm-hmm. But instead of starting at the assumption of that, hey, you're great, and you can, be, you can accomplish anything you want, you know, like, like let's, let's bring it down a notch and be honest and be like, look, you're probably a selfish piece of shit because I'm a selfish piece of shit. So let's just talk about how we... Together, it can be less selfish pieces of shit. <laughs> mm.
1: I like it. That is, that is definitely pessimistic self-help right
0: there. <laughs> well, So you have this interesting quote
1: I want to bring up, because this is a discussion I'd be interested in having with you. So you have this quote. It says, The way we interact with our psyche is the template on which we apply to our interactions with others, and little progress can be made with others until we've made progress with ourselves. This is a thing I struggle with a lot, because yeah. what we talk about on this podcast often is self-care, figuring out how to be less of a piece of shit, (laughs) things like that. And a critique of that, which I think, again, is a fair critique, is that this can be inherently selfish. But at the same time, the way I respond to that, there's a lot of bad shit happening in the world on a systemic and structural level. And I can be in here talking about the merits of deep breathing. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. My response to that is that if you are going – through pain yourself and you don't understand how to cope with that pain, you're going to project that pain onto other people, right? It's the classic hurt people, hurt people. Yeah, I don't know where the line is. I don't know at what point you should get out of your head and into the world. And I'm just curious as someone who has thought deeply about a lot Mm -hmm. of these things, how you think about that balance. Because I love that quote. And and that's one of the, where I read it, where I was like, oh, this is like a
0: arrow I can put in my quiver for when I'm having this debate with people. Yeah, because people who are awful to others awful to themselves. Yeah. I think it's a balance. If you're only out in the world, if you're only trying to fix the world, as well-intentioned as that is, you are going to be projecting a lot of your own shit on the people and not realizing some of the harm you're doing. In many cases, people in trying to fix the world around them, they're, it's actually just another form of avoidance of dealing with themselves. Mm. So that doesn't really lead anywhere that good. And then on the flip side, people who don't, who only... Obsess about fixing themselves and ignore the world. Well, then they just kind of they just become very self-centered and obnoxious. So there, there needs to be a balance of those two things because it's like you said, it's the willingness to improve yourself, to question yourself and challenge yourself, become more emotionally resilient, more articulate, more thoughtful, understand your own values better. That allows you to approach the world more clearly mm. and understand. And when you engage with others, help them with a greater clarity of you know, this is for you, this is for me. There needs to be a boundary there of like, okay, this is the help I'm giving and this is still my identity here. Mm. If you don't do that internal work yourself, then you're gonna be forcing your own issues onto a lot of the people that you're helping. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so.
1: I think I feel like this might be a good time, too, to bring up anti-fragility, which is something you yeah. talk about, which I think is really interesting because you, the word you use there is emotionally resilient, which sure. I think speaks to a little bit of what anti-fragility is, although it's slightly different, right? So how, yeah. how would you sort of define anti-fragility?
0: Anti-fragility... So the argument I make is the human body is designed in such a way that you need to strain and break down the muscle a little bit for it to not only get stronger, but also to remain healthy in the first place. Like if your body just sits around on a couch (laughs) for months and months and months, it gets fragile and weak and eventually starts falling apart. The same thing's true for the human mind. So if there's not enough challenge or strain for the human mind, the mind becomes fragile and weak. Nassim Tlaib called this anti-fragility, but it's basically this idea that pain makes you stronger. It's very noble to want to go out and change the world and fix the world. But if you have not done the internal work yourself, you're not going to know where to direct that fixing. I think what people don't realize is that if you don't, have your own shit together then your perception of what's wrong with the world is going to be fuzzy and inaccurate and i like that you classified meditation as like exercise and anti-fragility it totally
1: is because it is a lot of just sitting there with your own shit and realizing all of your own shit right getting comfortable man yeah
0: (laughs) but the idea that you should let
1: go of trying to be good at it is a really interesting idea because that is i feel like this is just anecdotal evidence but the number one reason you hear people quit is they're like oh i'm not good at it yeah and Absolutely. your whole point is like you're not supposed to be good at it. That's the point. It's supposed to exactly. suck. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny too, because a lot of a lot of people who dabble in meditation do it to de-stress or kind of relax. And it's, I think that's a nice kind of gateway drug. It's a nice way to trick people into doing it. And yes, it will de-stress you and relax you a little bit. But it it's the conversation I often have with people is like, it's not the point. You know, some because mm-hmm. sometimes I'll talk to people and they're like, Well, yeah, I meditated for a while and it was really relaxing. But then, then it started stressing me out. And I'm like, Well, it's probably because it was, you were confronting something that you needed, that you were trying to avoid before. It is supposed to be an uncomfortable and and difficult practice.
1: It reminds me of what we were talking about a little bit earlier of just like showing up every day. Like it's not going to be great every day, but you just show up and you do it. Yeah.
0: Some days everything you write is crap. All right. Yeah. Just go home. Try again tomorrow.
1: But, I mean, that gets nicely too in the the book in terms of the idea of living conditionally versus unconditionally. Living conditionally in that way in terms of expecting something from the meditation is sort of an adolescence mindset, right? Absolutely. we do something to get pleasure and it's that trade-off that we're searching for. Yes. Whereas as an adult, you let go of that and you live unconditionally. You do things because they're the right things to do even though you may not get it in return. I mean, the one you talk about that I think is really resonant for me was you love someone even though knowing they may not love you back and exactly. that's scary as shit, but exactly. it's the same way with meditation, right? Absolutely. You meditate
0: not expecting to meditation to love you back, but It's the same with writing. You yeah, write something yeah. not expecting it to love you back. It's a, And it's the same thing if you if you want to affect change in the world. If something is right, it needs to be right even if it's not fun, even if you don't see results, even if it backfires, like it shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it should be the right thing to do which circles us all the way back to you writing the second book and trying to let go of the sort of extrinsic <laughs> totally.
1: rewards. So a lot of this book, I feel like, is is sort of regarding oneself mm-hmm. or sort of a meta-awareness. And I'm curious what you have in your own life that has helped
0: cultivate your own sort of self-awareness. Well, writing itself has been huge. I think the reason why writing is therapeutic is because it forces you to kind of externalize your own thoughts and patterns. I, I always tell people that you know, my work. It's a public form of therapy. Everything we're talking about now, like you just pointed it out. It's like I wrote this book because I needed these answers for myself. Mm. It's the same thing with subtle art when I wrote it. I spent a lot of years meditating. I was really, really into Zen Buddhism in my early 20s. Did a bunch of retreats and things like that. Therapy, fucking needed that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> like, I always try to... Observe and question my own thoughts and, and assumptions as much as possible. Mm. Like I think it's just it's a habit that I've always tried to develop intellectually, but also kind of emotionally. Relationships is is actually another great therapeutic process. Like having somebody you love call you on your bullshit and you're like, oh fuck, they might be right. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's also makes you very aware. So all of these things have contributed a lot and like helped me a lot. And a lot of what went into this book was. I wanted to write a book cuz fundamentally I believe that you know this whole idea of who Mark is or who Clay is, like it's, it's just a bunch of narratives wrapped up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a, it's just that it's kind of a game that our brains play. They create all these stories of, of meaning, and they all they get all tied together and bunched up, and that becomes like your identity, yeah. you know. And it's I've spent my whole life kind of figuring out how to tease out those narratives and and look at them and be like, well, you know, this isn't necessarily true. It could be the complete opposite. Um, and so I wanted to write a book that would hopefully walk the reader through being able to do that same thing for themselves you know take any narrative of meaning that they have about themselves or about the world and look at it and be like oh well this is arbitrarily constructed mm-hmm. probably from some past experience and i don't necessarily have to believe in it if i don't want to
1: so A lifetime's worth of work right there. (laughs) I mean, doing that can takes your whole life in some ways. But, but I mean, it's important because you have that line in the book, too, where you talk about getting punched in the face hurts. But also, when someone says something that seems contrary to these narratives that create our identity, that's like a metaphorical punch in the face. And we immediately react from a
0: place of ego, and we're like, that's where all defensive and insecurity comes from. Sure. I mean, it's... a really negative review of my book arguably hurts more than getting punched. In, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's because it's there's kind of this metaphysical body that I have that has all these beliefs about myself. You know that I'm a good writer and I write good books and I help people and all this stuff. And so as, as soon as somebody comes along and contradicts that, it's like getting hit by a truck. To make a clunky
1: segue, at what point does Will Smith call you? Because <laughs> you're you were writing a book with him. Is
0: that a, yeah? So how did that come together? Uh, his team got in touch with me about a year and a half ago. He was a fan of the book and his he'd been looking for an author to kind of work with for a while. And his manager thought that it would be a really good fit. And so it was a very surreal experience, but I ended up getting hooked up with him and spent four days with him in the Caribbean, which just that by itself, (laughs) like even if I didn't get the gig, it's like spending four days with Will Smith in the Caribbean is like, this isn't reality. you know? (laughs) It's like this alternate universe. But yeah, we hung out for a few days and talked a bunch. And at the end of, of that trip, I pitched him an idea and he loved it. Wow. And that was it. What was the the thing that sticks with you most, be it a way he carried himself or a nugget of advice he gave you? or The short answer I give is if, if you ever saw an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, he, <laughs> didn't, he didn't act a day on that sh- Like That whole show is basically just a bunch of professional actors acting around will smith that that is (laughs) that is exactly who he is that comes across i feel like on his like instagram now i mean he's having this this renaissance
1: as an instagram celebrity he
0: is well and you know what's as an
1: instagram artist i would say actually
0: and you know what's crazy too is is so i've been doing i've been doing all this research for the book so like at this point i know fucking everything about his life That's actually how the show started is that, I mean, they had an idea for the show, but when they met him, like he had no acting experience. He had never been on on T like on a TV show or anything. But they met him and they're just like, man, we should just build a show around this guy. Like, and so they signed him that night. They signed him at a party at Quincy Jones' house, which wow. just like never happens. He didn't even have an agent, didn't have a manager, didn't <laughs> have anything. Why was he there? Well, Quincy told him to come out. They're like, hey, we want to do a TV show. Come out to LA. And he came out and they're like, the, all the executives and stuff at NBC were like, Yep, yeah, sign him. Wow. So that brings me to my next point, which is just that he is hands down the most charismatic mm. person I've ever been around. There's no close second. And I think that's attributed to, I think, his, he's a really smart, thoughtful guy, but he's, his emotional intelligence is just off the charts. Like huh. his ability to be with people, whether it's fans, his team members, me, his family, like his ability to empathize and work with people rather than against them is just, it's really impressive. Like when I hang out with him, I'm like, man, I should be nicer to my fans. Like (laughs) it's really amazing to watch. So that's kind of what the book is about. It's just kind of how he emotionally processes life in the world. All I can think about is what if he didn't go to that party at Quincy Jones? (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Okay. The last... At the end of the show, we ask everyone the same question. Okay. Which is for a favorite fuck-up of yours.
0: Favorite fuck Oh, my God. I got to pick one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: we can record multiple if you like. Ooh,
0: favorite fuck-up.
1: We can make the recurring segment just Mark Manson's favorite <laughs> fuck-ups. and yeah, At Mark, the end of every episode,
0: we put fuck, one of your favorite fuck-ups. Fuck-up of the week. <laughs> oh, here, Here's a big fuck I mean, it turned out. I, I always feel weird saying these because it's like obviously things turned out great. Yeah. But, Here's my favorite fuck up. I graduate school and I've got a, a couple friends who are like starting a web business. And I knew, I took some classes in school. So I knew kind of like basic web design. And so I offered to help them out and they like gave me a hundred bucks or whatever. In my head, I'm like, I'm going to have a real job. You know, I'm going to have a real career. So I, I go and I get a job at an investment bank. Why? I have no fucking idea. And I remember being there the first day. Like we had this whole training thing, and it was like 11 a.m. on the first day, and I was sitting there thinking about how soon I could quit. Like, like (laughs) at what point in a job can you quit and it's not embarrassing? And I'm like, dude, you're like, can I do it on the second day? (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm like, I'm thinking about this on the first day. This is a horrible sign. And so I'm like working in this kind of dead end job, and I'm spending the afternoons. I'm like, you know what? These friends of mine, they're doing this web thing. I bet I could do that, and so I create a website in my free time, and I just start trying to like sell some stuff through it, and I actually get really lucky, and I make like five hundred bucks like the first couple weeks, and I'm like, man, this shit's easy, and I like immediately walk into my manager's office, I'm like, hey, give me my two weeks, peace out, you know, and I walk out, and I'm like, man, this is this is gonna be great, I'm gonna be like, in a few months, I'm gonna be making thousands of dollars a month. Yeah, I was I was living on my my girlfriend's couch. Like within <laughs> within like 3 months, I like run through all my savings. It was living on my girlfriend's couch. Her parents hated me. They're like this guy's a deadbeat. He's not like he needs to get a real job and so yeah, I mean, it's on the one hand, I was so naive and, and totally arrogant, you know, but on the other hand, it's like it almost benefited me cuz I don't know if I knew how hard it was going to be. It took me a year to like because after the girlfriend kicked me out, I went and lived with my mom. And it took me a year to stop living with my mom again. I think if I'd known it was going to be that hard up front, I might not have quit my job. Huh. So it, it almost, how clueless I was, like, was almost beneficial. That is not where I thought that story was
1: going. <laughs> I thought the end of that story was going to be that your friends invented like Twitter or something no, and that no, you had no, no, opted no. out of the web business to, to go do investment banking. No. Are you still with that girlfriend? No. Well, I hope her parents have read uh, I Subtle too. Art of Not Giving a Fuck. I you, should send, you should send them a copy.
0: <laughs> I do too. I think about that sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were not fan. They were like, this guy is shady. Like, you need to kick him out. Well, thank you for
1: joining us on Airplane Mode. Thanks for having me. Guys, go get it. Yep. Everything is Fucked, a book about hope by Mark Manson. That's the show. Thank you to Mark for coming on. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks as always to Jessman Molly, our producer. Hope you guys have a great July 4th weekend and we will see you next week.